Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Hey, it's Hugh Ballou again on another episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. We're six and a half years into this this project of interviewing leaders, gathering wisdom, learning from their experience, learning from their expertise, basically figuring out how we're going to install really good sound business principles into the tax-exempt organization that we lead. We call it social benefit. Some people call it nonprofit. It is the nonprofit exchange. It's not a for-profit. It's a for-purpose venture. It's philanthropy. Uh, love of humankind. Uh, my guest today is a, a longtime friend, Tony Boda. I guess Tony has been 14 or 15 years since we first met in LA at an event. And um, we've touched base over the years. And recently I was on your show. So Tony, uh, been a longtime friend, uh, spent a, a career working in the hospitality industry. So tell people a little bit about you and why are you doing your own thing now? And what is your passion? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started my career 20 some years ago as an analyst, really in the marketing analytics world, understanding or trying to understand why customers made the decisions they made. And I, I started that in direct marketing very uh, after a few years in that space, moved into the hospitality industry where I had actually worked when I was in high school. But I came back instead of cleaning rooms, I was now actually in the corporate offices and doing marketing analytics and sales analytics for them, built their intelligence systems there. And in that process, one of the things that they, that they said was, we really need to understand our customers better. You've built all these other analytical systems. We love what you've done over there. We're gonna give you customer experience. And this was January of 2007. And I was in just one of my weekly meetings and I wasn't really paying attention until my name came up and they said customer experience and kind of paused and looked around because I didn't realize they were talking to me. And um, at that point, I kind of went into panic mode because I had never written a survey in my life. I had uh, avoided as many psychology classes as I could going through my undergrad and graduate program because I was a hard numbers guy. I wanted the numbers that you could prove, the processes, not this soft psychology stuff. So it was a foreign world to me. And I went back to my office after that meeting and I sat there and, and looking out the window and I remember thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I know two things. One, I know, I know how to learn. I, I developed that skill that I could learn pretty much anything I want to. And the second thing was I knew that Google had a whole lot more information than I had. So that's why I did. I started Googling and searching and learning all about customer experience and customer service and surveys and, that brought me down a rabbit hole of psychology and a number of other things. And actually it was within that, that year, 2007, when we actually met because of the path I was on and what was happening in my life at that time, we ended up running into each other at a conference. Um, so I worked with, I worked with a hotel company. It's now owned uh, or operated by Marriott, the Gaylord brand. I was there while it was still an independent brand and we were still building in a massive building phase there. And I run, ran customer satisfaction programs and the guest and meeting planner satisfaction programs. The, the company as a whole had about 50 different businesses. If you think about it, it's massive hotels with retail shops and 
restaurants and golf courses and live entertainment venues, you name it, we pretty much had it. So I had to understand all these different types of experiences and how they influenced one another. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a learning, you know, jumping out of the fry pan into the fire and uh, learning on the fly. But it was a great experience in that. And I was there for five years and I finally decided with the, actually in the last recession, I figured, you know what, there's no better time to start a business than during a recession, right? And so I kicked off my own business in 2009 and started consulting and a little, little bit of humor there, you know, the, the downturn happened and I just decided it was time for me to leave the company and, uh, and went out on my own. And, and since then, I've been doing a lot of work in the area of customer experience that branched off into employee experience, leadership experience. So if it's related to human experience, I'm probably got my fingers on it somehow. And so my passion really is, I, I've, I've recognized that every moment of human experience has within it this power to make a decision. And that power contains the potential to change the trajectory of human history. And that's what drives me every day. I, I recognize that every moment of human experience has within it this power to make a decision. And that power contains the potential to change the trajectory of human history. And that's what drives me every day. I, I recognize that every moment of human experience. Well, we have, we seem to have to Facebook talking back to us here. Hang on. Um, Today is a day of challenges for technology, so I apologize for that. Um, from not having technology to work to having to talk back to you like that. So that's, that's really a fascinating journey, and I, I was pretty right. So we met way back, way back in, um, what did you say, 2007? 2007, yep. Wow. That's, that's um, I wasn't as old then. So um, <laughs> I wasn't either. <laughs> well, thank God we're still here. Um, so we have some people watching on Facebook, some people watching on the, the webinar. And so if you're on the webinar, please ask questions in the Q&A uh, there. If you're on Facebook, just put it into the, the comment section. So, um, <clears throat> Tony, our, our topic today is the power of transformational experiences. So it's about a customer and it's still a customer relationship piece, but we have donors and I see statistics that 70 to 80% of most of the nonprofit budgets is supported by donors. So how is that related to the work that you did with, uh, with Gaylord and with the hospitality business? Well, Hugh, actually, I think there's, when I look at this, I see actually three different types of experiences that we have to be aware of. And, and you might even expand that beyond those three, but you've got the donor for sure, because they provide the funding for the, for the nonprofit organization. You've also got the recipient experience, the person who's receiving the benefit of the nonprofit. And then you also typically, in a lot of these organizations, have the volunteer experience. And you could equate that, that might be kind of like an employee experience, but not really because they're there to, to give and also to receive something back in return. So you kind of have those three. So I might bounce around between those three as we talk today because they have different influences and different, different impact. But how it all relates to hospitality is essentially that what we know uh, coming out of the world of hospitality now is that it's not just about positive, ex positive emotions and those types of experiences. We lived from 2007 up until I would say COVID hit in March of 2020 here in an era that had been defined as the experience economy. 
and that's not my term, that actually goes back to a book written by Joe Pine and James Gilmore back in 1999, where they, they kind of went through this history of there was the commodity economy, like we bought coffee beans as an example. Then there was the product economy where we put those coffee beans in a, in a container and put it on a grocery store shelf and created branding around it. Then from there, you've got the, the service economy where you pour the coffee at the diner or you go to the gas station and you get your cup of coffee as you're headed into work in the morning, right? You know, it's the service orientation. And, and in 1999, they said, actually, we're moving into this new era of the experience economy. And they pointed to Starbucks in the coffee industry as an example, where it's the third place. You go there to have an experience. You pay five, six, seven dollars for a cup of coffee. And, and you meet your friends, you, you colleagues. Um, and really, he, it was a response, in, in a sense, to he saw how the third place, the place that people used to go, like the general store or even church or those types of organizations were on the decline. So the coffee shop kind of stepped in through Starbucks to do that. Well, Pine and Gilmore, in the very end of their book, as they talk all about the experience economy and how to build an experience economy company, the very end, they say, what's next? What comes after that? And there's a, just a few paragraphs really on this, and it's called the transformation economy. And so I've spent the last seven or eight years going deep into the transformation economy because I knew that's where we were headed to. And I would posit that we're actually with COVID, we've actually hit an accelerator right now for the transformation economy. So say more about how transformation and economy fit together. Those don't quite seem to fit to me. Exactly. So, well, in the experience economy, it's about you, you, you're, you're staging experiences so that people have good, positive feelings and making memories. So the next time they want to do that, something like that, they say, oh, I remember I had a really good feeling when I went to this place. I'm going to go back there again, right? Well, the transformation economy goes beyond that because the transformation economy is focused on helping the customer or the donor or the volunteer or the recipient to achieve the aspirations and goals they have in their life. And to do that, it's not just about staging one experience, but you actually have to create a series of experiences that actually move them and change them so they change their self-identity they change who they believe they are and how they show up in the world, their perspective of the world. And so that's a transformation that happens for them. And at the outcome, if they re reach the outcome, they've become a different person in the process. And I look at this and I, I think you can look at a lot of different nonprofits and say, well, they've kind of been doing that work already. And there's definitely truth to that. But now that's the way the economy as a whole is going to be expanding over the next 10 to 15 years. And that is, that is the intent of some organizations, like um, the work of uh, Christian churches is, mm -hmm. is supposed to be a transformational journey. Um, it sadly has not been in many cases. Um, I live in Lynchburg, Virginia. We have the highest percentage uh, of the population living under the poverty line in the whole Commonwealth of Virginia. And we have, we have services that help house and feed and provide medical uh, assistance for, for those people who, who really need it. However, there's no transformation of their lives and their mindsets. Uh, you know, we have, there's a mindset of, of poverty that is temporarily being broke. Um, how are we then in our work transforming people's lives? And I guess that's how we measure the effectiveness of our work as nonprofits. It's the impact. We can say we fed a lot of people, but if we really transformed their experience into something newer or helped empower them to do something better. 
Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah. So if you, if you use that example, um, a lot of nonprofits will look at how many people we fed last year. They'll have the statistics and the numbers, which is all good work. I'm not, not denying that at all. But th what they don't do is look at how many people did we help so that they can now feed themselves? How many people are, people are out of the poverty cycle? And an example I had, you know, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about there's a lot of organizations as an example that they, they raise money to go relieve hunger in Africa, which is very good work. However, there are a few organizations and one of them that I, is it okay if I mention a particular organization? Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of them that I, I have done, you know, donated to and really support is the Unstoppable Foundation. And the Unstoppable Foundation actually goes into the villages and they, they create a thriving village. So they, they build a school so that the kids can go to school. They train the parents, particularly mothers, to have skills so they have an economic engine. They teach them how to raise their own food if they, if they don't have that in the village already. They provide uh, a well so that they can get fresh drinking water instead of walking for miles to do this, which is what a lot of the girls have to do so they can't get educated. That's their role in the family. Um, and then they also provide uh, healthcare and, and medical. So a lot of these things, they create a sustainable, thriving village so that they don't need to continue to receive funds for the education and for the food long-term. That's that should be the bottom line goal of any organization, shouldn't it? You would think. You'd think, and and again, sometimes you know, if you look at and and you know, we've got a hurricane that's that's you know heading toward the Gulf Coast right now, and and there's a place and there's a time for emergency reaction. There's a place and time for helping people in the immediate need just to get the food, shelter, clothing that they need, but oftentimes we don't have the organizations that will come in afterwards and help rebuild and build sustainability. I mean, New Orleans, 15, it was 15 years ago this weekend that Katrina hit New Orleans. And I know that because it hit on my daughter's second birthday and her name is Katrina as well. So, you know, we look at Katrina and, and that hurricane, the effects of it are still present in New Orleans. It has not been rebuilt, no matter what organizations, government or otherwise, have gone down there. So how do we, we've identified a problem. We feed people, but we don't help them elevate themselves out of, out of what we're calling poverty. Um, and, and, and I have said uh, to the leaders in my city, we have uh, bridges out of poverty. We have poverty initiatives. We have poverty that, this and that. And I say to them, why are we talking about what we don't want? We don't want poverty. Why don't we talk about self-sufficiency? Why don't we talk about prosperity? Why don't we, there, there's prosperity and we can use all kinds of excuses that people say, oh, this holds me back or that holds me back. But there are brilliant examples of how people have overcome this, their situations to achieve excellence when they're committed to achieving that and breaking out of their cycle. Mm -hmm. So what's the answer? And uh, you've got a number of books that you've listed. Is there a particular book that you've written that would, provide some secrets. So what's the answer to this? What do people need to learn? And we're talking to nonprofit leaders, to uh, clergy, to community organizations like Chambers of Commerce or membership organizations. We're talking about people that do uh, tax exempt philanthropic work. Yeah. So I think of, of my books, the one that would be probably the best one would be profitability. And it's written for for-profit companies. 
Um, and it's, it's actually spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T, profit, ability. And in there, we talk about the, the ability to, to listen. It's unfiltered listening that the top level executives have to be listening to the customers. And so if you translate this into a nonprofit environment, the executives and the board have to be listening to the recipients, the volunteers, the donors. And it's about building a vision for the future, three to five years out. What is it that they're going to need in three to five years? Not just what they need today. And I think the organizations at the leadership level have to change their mindset to say, how are we building an organization that is growing with these individuals so that we're sustaining them, we're helping them today and helping them sustain themselves three to five years in the future. And if we change our mindset to do that, the questions change. In other words, instead of figuring out how do I help so-and-so feed their family today, which may be an immediate need I still have to help with, but then we can say things like, why is it they haven't received a higher level of skills? Why is it they can't get a better job or maybe get a job at all? Why is it they, they refuse to get health care that they could receive? Why is it they refuse to, to take advantage of the benefits that are available to them in the status they're in right now? And all of that, in short, comes back to mindset. There's something they believe as an individual or maybe their families believe for generations. Um, you, you, you live in the Appalachian region or near there. So you know there's a lot of people in that region that just don't trust the government. And they will not take handouts from the government no matter if it's the local government or the federal government because they don't trust them. That's a mindset issue. And, and I'm not going to make them right or wrong on that, but that's an understanding that they have that something that's happened back in their history, their past, the stories they've heard that support that belief system for them. And so we have to change their hearts and minds and help them to be able to see that there might be something different. There might be a better way. Um, pride is another thing that holds, holds a lot of people back. And it, I don't mean this in a, the negative sense of pride but it almost goes too far. It's like the pride that I know I'm self-sufficient. I know that I can, I can raise my children and I can build a life. And um, it's, it's, you know, in redneck country, if you want to call it that, you know, places around the country where it's the backwoods, but these people are so ingenious. They, they, they keep a car running for 30 and 40 years where a lot of other people are like, after two years, I got to turn in the lease because I can't stand it anymore. Right? So they've got these abilities and these strengths and these geniuses but they're not applied in a way that really benefits them for sustainability in the long term or for thriving. Let's go beyond sustainability, thriving in the long term as human beings, uh, not just economically. Those are people that during the prohibition learned to be entrepreneurs by, by having stills and Billy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> selling moonshine. Yeah. Um, so I am in Appalachia. And um, actually, I live in a region that doesn't trust the government called America. Um, and so um, it's, it's, um, there's, a, there's a high level of, of distrust. And there's some, um, we do tend to want to trust nonprofits, but we don't really um, regard them as professional institutions. And it's yep. the third biggest workforce in America is the people that work for nonprofits. And it has a huge economic impact. Um, it's got a social impact, economic impact in the communities. And, and so we've, we've put on this dumbed down hat, scarcity thinking when we use the word, which is a lie, the word nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not an official nomenclature with IRS. It's a tax exempt corporation. 
and we do have a lot more rules than regular businesses, but um, we are called to a higher purpose. And so what you're pointing out, we, we uh, at CenterVision, our work is in the area that would have the umbrella description of capacity building, enabling leaders to lead better, enabling organizations to step up to the challenge, boards to function as boards, understanding how they function. And um, so there's a number of, of, of uh, capacity building pieces, but, and then having a strategy so people really know how I can be engaged, what am I supposed to do and when am I supposed to do it? But you're pointing out a big blind spot of how do we measure the, the transformational experience of what we're doing. Yes, we've fed so many people. Yes, we've packaged so many meals. Yes, we've uh, housed so many people. But what have we done to transform their lives and to impact their thinking? So that that's not only that's that's a commonly uh, left out piece of the puzzle, isn't it? It it is, and I'll, I'll use another example here: um, universities or schools. Uh, yeah. One of my daughters goes to a nonprofit here, and I was on the the gala committee last year. You know, part of the PTA and helping raise money. And it was interesting to be a part of that. I've been a part of those associations, you know, those organizations for a while now. Um, as my girls have grown up, but it, it got me thinking in a different way last year as I observed what was going on. And then I received a solicitation for my college recently, the, my undergraduate college that I went to. And, um, and, you know, they're asking the same things again. And then we have a short budget shortfall. We need money. We want to help these people through, um, you know, they've got some type of mission orientation to the languaging and the messaging and that. But again, and again, I see it, you know, whether it's a public university or private university, the, the messaging is about the same. We've got kids, we've got young adults here that we're trying to put through, trying to get them educated so they can go out there and change the world. But almost never do I see an appeal come through that is, you know, really, I would, let me say it this way, masked as a story about a person from five years ago who came through this college and now they're changing the world because they out there, they won this court case or they did X or they did Y or they started another organization or they've done this most of these schools and universities, even you know, high schools and grade schools, they don't talk about the kids that they helped transform years before and what they're doing now in the world and how they're changing the world today. And I as a I as a donor would love to see them say, Hey, here's you know, remember those people that you helped 10 years ago? Let's update you on some of their stories. Let's tell you where they're at. Let's give you some real examples of how they've changed the world and how their lives have changed. Um, the daughter, the, the daughter that goes to the school here, the private school here in Nashville, that school has been around for a hundred since I think it's 1865. It was founded by the Dominicans, the religious order, of the Dominicans here in Nashville. And, um, and so they've got this history of three, four generations of girls that have gone through this school. And it's like a very, there's, there's a lot of pride there. And so looking back and being able to say, Look at how we've changed the face of Nashville, the face of Tennessee, the face of the world. I mean, Nashville was the 36th state to vote for and, and got the Women's Suffrage Act approved, the, the, the amendment to the Constitution. How many of them were involved with something like that? You know, there's all these ways that we can look at and say, how have we or how have they transformed the world? How have the people we've fed gone out there and transformed the world? How have the people we've, we've churched, right? You know, we've preached to, how have they gone out and transformed the world? That is such a profound statement. Um, I'm going to insert a sponsor moment here. Our, our, one of our sponsors is WordSprint. They print and mail um, 
nonprofit performance 360 magazine. And what I've learned from Bill Gelmer and his team at WordSpread is in 20 years of mail, mail, top of mind marketing, there's the principles, 30% of, of it is the message. 30% of your effectiveness is the right message to the right person. So that's 30, 60, 30% is the right frequency. They want to hear from you frequently and only 10% is the appearance. And this is coming from somebody that has art and design and graphics department. Um, so, so the point underneath that is we're staying in touch with our donors. We're, we're telling them what's happened with their money. And so that's an example of what you're talking about. We're sending out a message to people on a regular basis, by the way, this is what's happened and we don't ask them for money. And so we're, we're targeting the person, different mailings to different types of supporters. I'm calling them right. supporters because philanthropists give time, talent and money. Um, and so we're staying in touch with them. We're telling them, here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. Finally, by the end of the year, we say, okay, now it's time for us to renew uh, this, this commitment to supporting all these missions, but you've told them what's happened with their money. Money. You've told them how we've transformed people's lives. You've told them, yes, we've been good stewards with that gift so that it's worthy to get more. But I'm surprised how few nonprofits have a program like that. So if I would say to, to listeners, if you want to understand how to keep your donors donating, go to wordsprint.com and book a, a consultation with Bill and his team. So, so Tony, in doing assessments, doing surveys, doing questions, getting some feedback from your people, um, it's a real art in being able to ask the right questions. Say a little bit about how do you define which questions you want to ask? Because sometimes we have uh, a little prejudice that gives benefit to ourselves and we're, we're afraid to ask some things. So we're, we're a little bit... Uh, we're a little bit skewed in how we create them because we want to know something, but not everything. Is that, is, can you talk about that? I absolutely can. Um, I, I would say this, you've got to understand the purpose of your request for feedback. Okay. Leave it kind of generic because it could mean getting people to go out to a social media site or a social review site. You know, let's take TripAdvisor in the world of hospitality, right? I send people out there, they put a review out there. Everyone else gets to see it. Uh, it could also be surveys, internal surveys. It could be emails you get back from people or letters you receive from people. But if you're going to solicit or request feedback, there's, there's really two big categories I look at in the for-profit world. And I think this applies very well in the nonprofit world as well. The first type of feedback is, how are we doing? In other words, is there something we need to fix? Do we have a blind spot that we're not seeing, we're not filling? What's going on out there in the world that we're not seeing, right? That's what you typically would think of when you, when you think of a survey in the, in the corporate world, the business world. But there's another form of survey. And this survey is really designed to solicit feedback around the stories and the messaging. Mm -hmm. And to know what actually is going to drive the greatest return on your marketing dollar. And that is understanding, number one, what do they, what do your, uh, the people you're soliciting, whether it's your donors or your volunteers and that, what do they see that they're gaining? And number two, what is of highest utility to them? And the reason there's, there's way, different ways to word those questions, but that's the essence of the two questions you want to go after. And then the third thing is you just want them to tell their story that demonstrates this. 
And so why you want to go after those two high utility and high gains is that there's been a ton of research out there. And, it's, and what we have discovered when we look at the reviews and the surveys that come back in, when someone ranks you very high on the utility side, like how useful your thing is, and when they rank you also very highly on the gains, it saved me time, it saved me money, it, it improved my reputation, you name it, whatever those gains are. When they give you, let's say, a five out of five on both of those questions, what they tell you in the story about their experience is gold from a marketing perspective. Because what happens is they start telling you about how amazing your, your organization is, how amazing the people in your organization are. And in fact, if you can trigger them feeling that they have had high utility and high gains, I, I kind of, you know, it's like a cross here, right? It's that one quadrant. If they fill that in, they're going to tell you stories that evoke four types of emotions. And these are critical for anyone in marketing. And I'll explain why in a moment. It's admiration of goodness, admiration of skill, awe, and gratitude. Those are four very unique emotions, and psychologists have discovered that so far, these are the only four emotions that they know that humans feel that are classified as other praising emotions, which means when we feel admiration of skill, admiration of, of goodness, awe, or gratitude, instead of focusing on ourselves, we go out to the world and tell the world about how amazing this person or this organization is, and we find ways to transform ourselves so we can become more like them. So we try to become better if we have admiration of goodness. Uh, we try to go out and do good things. If it's admiration of skill, we try to find a way to master something in our own lives or in our own businesses or in our own organizations. If it's awe, we feel connected with something so much greater than ourselves. We feel like we're part of a movement or we're connected to God or the divine. And then with gratitude, we feel as if someone has, has really listened and given us something that, that with, with no agenda, no hidden agenda. And so we want to turn around and reciprocate by giving to other people. So these four emotions are triggered when a person has received high utility and high gains at the same time. And they'll tell you about it in that story that they fill in on in the third question of the survey. So some version of that is what I like to ask because then you can turn all of that into your marketing messaging and use that. And it also triggers people going out there and word of mouth marketing, which is still the most influential form of marketing out there. Mm -hmm. It supports word of mouth marketing because now people are like, oh, let me tell you a story about this organization or that person, this brand. I, they, they can't stop themselves. They, they feel this compulsion to be out there talking about you. So some of those stories, what's the value of getting those on video? A, a short, uh, like a testimony, this is how the work of this particular organization has transformed my life. What's the power of getting the words and the, the picture together and using that to share with your supporters? It, it does not have to be professionally produced. So let me caveat it with that. It can be shot on an iPhone. It doesn't have to be um, the highest level of production. What is most important actually is the, is the expression of the person who's giving the feedback. If they're, if they're not emotive or if they're not engaged, that could do you far more harm. That would be better as a written, uh, you know, kind of a written quote on your website or something like that, or in your donor pieces, your mail. But if the person is very engaging, if they've got the, the expressions, they, they have that emotional social connection across the camera, definitely use those because what happens when we either experience 
the social emotional connection with another person through video as an example, or through audio, you might be listening to this and you can hear the, the emotion in my voice. Or if we're reading a story, what happens is we as the, as the reader or the, the person watching or listening, we actually take in and we have these, these neurons in our brain called mirror neurons. And they allow us to replicate what we're reading, hearing, or seeing. And it causes us to feel the same thing that we believe the person, the character in the story is feeling. And when we feel that way, we begin to think like they think. And so if they're talking about how it was so amazing that they gave this donation and they saw this great transformation and this is how it changed their life to be a donor, what happens is people are like, I want to feel that way. I want to give money because I want to be like that person. And so they, they decide, they essentially buy into the idea and they'll, they'll go ahead and make the donation. I want to point out to people that are listening or watching the video that if you didn't get all those points, there will be a transcription very soon on the website, the, the nonprivateexchange.org can lead you there. Um, or on the podcast, you can find by the same name, the nonprofit exchange, T-H-E, nonprofit exchange. You can find it anywhere that you get podcasts and there will be a transcription on the uh, podcast itself with any kind of smartphone and on the website itself. So you'll see the transcript of, uh, of that with the checklist. So you learned a lot from those psychologists that you tried to avoid, but the little bit you were there, you really paid attention. And, and so part of um, the work of Ryan Levesque in the book, Ask, um, people sometimes aren't aware of, of some of the things they need to be aware of. Um, Mark Morris from, uh, from Peru said that ideas are flowing like a river, he's inspired. Um, so we impact people's lives. Yes. And um, I'm thinking as you're talking, um, we're concentrating on donors, people that are outside the organization. I would like to point out the same items are true for inside because how many board members do we have that, Oh, I don't want to bother my friends and talk about money. I don't want to be able to, I don't want to have to talk to people about supporting this organization. They feel embarrassed to share the message of what's going on. And so I think there's some internal marketing and internal mindset, internal empowerment that that would work. It's just as important as the external. What do you think of that? I think that's a great insight. Um, and in, in the corporate world, the you know, for-profit world, what we often recommend is that, and I've, I've done this actually recently with COVID, we've had to restructure how we do it, but it's awesome. We, we run these trainings where we actually take the stories that we got from feedback, whether it's surveys or social reviews or something like that. And we have these trainings where we actually teach the, the individuals who work for the organization what to listen for. Because if you, if you teach them what to listen for as the, the customer, is, is going through the organization, then they say, well, gee, that sounds like that would be a three-star review or a five-star review or a one-star review. And they can kind of take action immediately to rectify the situation. So that's one application of it. And you can do that in a nonprofit just as well. You'd have to train your volunteers potentially to know what to listen for. But there's a bigger picture, and this goes to those executive level, as you were talking about, they don't have to go ask for money what they have to do is really learn how to tell stories about the good work that's being done. Go tell stories. Like they can start a story off like, I, I, I just heard this story the other day about this, this 
person who was below the poverty line and struggling. It was a mom. She had three kids, et cetera. And they go into the story. They don't have to even mention the nonprofit organization until the end and say, oh, yeah, this is one of the people that we supported at XYZ nonprofit. But you, you tell a story that you hear. You get really good at storytelling, and people are going to be so pulled in by that story that they're, they're going to want to be part of it. And then you tell them, this is what we do here. It's not about the money, but if you're asking for money, you're asking the wrong question. You've got to ask that question, but it's the wrong time. As a sequence coach, you understand this. <laughs> you, you can't go in asking for the money on the front end. You tell the story, and then when the, at the peak of the story, at that climax is when you drop in the question. Do you want to be part of this? Absolutely. We don't make a really good case for it before we, and then we show up with this poverty mentality, this scarcity yeah. mentality. Oh, we're in trouble. Would you give money? And, and like the letters you get from the universities, they should know better. Um, hey, we need you to give money. Well, that's not the point. The point is we're transforming people's lives and this is how we're doing it. And this is how we're going to use your money. I just throw those away because I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that my money is going to be usefully spent. Right. Absolutely. And one of the things, I think that one of the greatest tools that we have in this storytelling process is the hero's journey. And I think it's really important for any executive within the organization to really understand this. The hero's journey is, the, the organization themselves is not the hero. And this is where a lot of organizations get it wrong, even in the for-profit world too. They think they're the hero. In fact, the organization is the guide that's helping someone who is a reluctant average person become the hero of their own story. So that's part one. And if you can, if you can begin to understand how the hero's journey works, Joseph, study Joseph Campbell or any of the other greats that talk about the hero's journey. And there's some great branders out there. Um, story brand is an example of one, a, a good framework to use for this. But if you understand the hero's journey, what's the external problem they're facing? What's the internal problem out there? They're feeling What's philosophically wrong with this? Why shouldn't this situation be? And you show them the pathway. It's amazing what can happen for people. So the organization is the guide. The, the donor or the volunteer or the recipient are actually the heroes. They're the ones out there that are be, being the heroes. And if you progress over time, you'll find that you eventually have donors and volunteers and recipients who, who have gone through their own hero's journey, and now they actually can become the guide for the next generation. And so they recycle around. They're now the guides for the next generation of heroes who become the guides to the next generation of heroes. No one talks about that in the marketing about how at the end of the hero's journey, it's about becoming a guide. Well, you're the hero for heroes, train the trainers. All right, that's, that's a profound um, paradigm shift for me. And we're thinking about, oh, we're heroes because we've helped all these people. That's the wrong message. Absolutely. That's ego talking. And, and it's not the humble, well, we've been a catalyst for transformation. And the catalyst doesn't participate in it. We're the agent that makes it happen. Um, and so I've often said that people say, oh, because of you, we're a lot better organization. I said, no, you did it. I was just yeah. a catalyst for transformation. I gave you the, the belief that you could do it and the system to operate in and the space to rise above the mediocrity that you thought was the norm before. 
And I, th I think sometimes, Tony, is what's coming to me and what you're describing is that we create our own limitations. Bob Proctor talks about uh, people that couldn't escape from Alcatraz and, and, and they were trying to escape. But there's other people who they're, they're invited to escape from the mental prison that they're in, but they don't even try. And, and, and so there's, a, there's, there's something there, the trap that we put our own, our own lives in, our own thinking inside this mental trap. And I think the whole culture of the nonprofit sector, which would include churches, synagogues, mm -hmm. education, service organizations, it's the trap of thinking in scarcity terms and not abundance terms. We've really been blessed with abundance all over the place. And if you go back to uh, one of my guests in history was Don Green, uh, the, who used Napoleon Hill's principles as, he, in a, as a banker. And now he's the director, the legacy builder for the Napoleon Hill Foundation down the street from me in Wise, Virginia. But Napoleon Hill's principle of interviewing all these great leaders are universal principles. And he ended up saying, whatever the mind can conceive and believe can be achieved. There's the believing part that, that is, gets in the way sometimes. And what you're talking about is creating a compelling um, well, it's like projecting the end and then it brings you toward, here's the vision for the possible. And so that's kind of what all these leaders did. They had a clear vision, clear ultimate purpose. And that was what drove them to success because they could see success. Absolutely. I think that an element of it is, and, and this, is a, this is a nuance, so not everyone may pick this up, but there's a difference be between, I think, the vision of success and projecting that vision. And there's a difference between being in the moment successful. And I'll, I'll use an example from the for-profit world. We actually discovered that if you ask certain questions on a survey prior to an offer being made, it could be four weeks before the offer is made. And what we found is that people who had the self-identity of whatever it is we were as a user of whatever it is we were going to sell, four weeks before, there was a 90 plus percent chance that they were going to be a buyer. If they did not use language related that, that identified them as they didn't say, I, I am XYZ or I think XYZ or I see I could be a person who did XYZ. If they didn't have the self-identity in advance of the offer being made, they would not purchase. So it's, it's an understanding that that's buying, but if you think about buying in to an idea, to a concept, to a mission, it's not just about there's a vision for, uh, it used to be the vision 2020, right? Now it's like vision 2030 or vision 2050. We have to be talking as if it is in the present. We are working vision 2030 right now. We have to be in the present moment. And, and the nuance there, we've actually discovered that the number of personal pronouns, I, me, we, versus uh, that, that a person uses versus another person who does not, is an indicator of that self-identity that they're expressing. Now, if that I, me, and we is, is used to express the vision, then they're more likely to be a person who's bought in and, and willing to help and support and donate and do all these other things. If the I, me, we is not present and you're trying to get them to donate or do these things, they're not engaged. They're not going to be there because they don't see themselves as that type of person. So it's really important to recognize, you know, are they talking about themselves in that role or are they just saying, 
oh yeah, that's a really good idea. Are they saying, I love that idea, or it's a really good idea? Very, very different, but that nuance is so significant in the purchasing or the buying into an idea. And we're unaware of that. There's a, there's a common uh, party game that's a warm-up where you give people five beans when they walk in the door. And you say, every time, try to refrain from using I, we, or I, me, or my, the personal pronoun. And if you catch someone else using one of those, you get to get one of their beans. You say, mm, caught you, get mm -hmm. a bean. So, and, and typically they say, I caught you, and they say, I got ah. So we just <laughs> exchange beans. So we're unaware. And very often somebody would go in and lose all their beans in just a matter of seconds because we're so unaware of how often we use that and how we're thinking about self and we have lack, and this is all of us, I'm guilty mm -hmm. as anybody. I'm an expert on the subject of leadership because I made all the mistakes many times. <laughs> we call those learning, learning opportunities. Um, so that's, that's a self-awareness piece that I think is so, so strong. I want to go back to something you talked about earlier that I'm still trying to get my head around and get some more examples of, um, can you give some examples uh, if from the profit sector, for example, for the experience economy business and the transformation economy business? I, I just want to get some more clarity around the contrast in those and what are some specific examples of each? Absolutely. So let me use coffee as an example because I started down that path earlier. Um, coffee from an experience perspective, we would look at Starbucks. That's the typical example everyone out there is going to use because you're staging experiences at Starbucks. Everyone wants to come back and you're paying a premium for that experience. Well, and you guys can look this up. It's a, it's a company called Change Please and they've started off with a coffee business. And so this is a social business. I would call it that. It's not a nonprofit. Uh, it is a for-profit business, but it's socially oriented. And it's, it was originally based out of London. They have these small coffee carts that they literally drive up. It's like a three-wheel motorbike with a big you know, trunk on it, if you will. They drive them to little specific locations. The owner realized that at the growth, the growth uh, rate that people were drinking coffee, London would need 100,000 baristas over time. And so he's looking around saying, we don't have the workforce for this. He sees that there is a, a large growing population of homeless people on the streets. He puts two and two together, probably wasn't instantaneous, right? But he says, what if I started a socially responsible business that focused on training these baristas who are, or these people who are homeless to be baristas, they get paid, we get them into shared housing. Eventually, if they make enough, they get into a, a you know, personal flat of their own, et cetera, et cetera. And they move. They develop skill sets and they move out of being a homeless person into a being a person who's an active member of society and contributing and all of that. And so there's kind of an, a number of elements of transformation that takes place here. One, there's the transformation of the employee, the, the, the homeless person into an employee, to a barista, to a, uh, maybe not a homeowner, but you know, a renter at least, right? The other side to this is also equally important. And this is where not, I think the, the not-for-profit sector has to really pay attention. It's not just about the transformation of the individuals, right? The people who are walking up who say, I could buy a Starbucks coffee and walk down the street, the Starbucks logo sticking out. And what does that say? I can afford $6 a cup of coffee. And I can, you know, I, I am feeling really good and I'm not knocking them. It's just kind of this, there's an ego. There's a bit of maybe narcissism or something else going on there. Right. I drink a lot of Starbucks coffee. So, you know, I'm, I'm in that category. 
I could also go to Change Please Coffee on the street corner, pay exactly the same amount, get essentially the same quality of coffee. It's not that the product itself, the coffee is any better, but I'm walking down the street now with Change Please logo instead of the Starbucks logo. And what that says about me is I'm a philanthropist. I just help a homeless person get a job, and now I know they're living in a flat someplace, whether it's shared or their own flat. So it has transformed that purchase and the purchaser from being just someone who's buying their coffee to show what they can do to a person who's buying exactly the same product, but having a very, very different transformation because now they've suddenly become a person who transforms the world around them. Would you like to hear some questions from those people that are listening? I would love to. All right. Anybody out there that would like to ask a question? Uh, Sandy, Bob, Mark, Sussity, you have a question. You can unmute. Bob, you're unmuted. Go ahead and ask. Well, this is a very interesting topic. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get into the beginning of it. And uh, so I'll probably just ask a question that you've already probably answered in some of your, your, your thoughts. Um, I, I was interested in this uh, change, please, uh, which is a social business, as you said, but it's not um, a nonprofit, but yet it does what nonprofits do, which is help people. So that's what it is. And so when, when they say it's for profit, but they're transforming. So the social thing is make, getting people to change, transforming who they are as people. Is that correct? That's correct. So it, it transforms both the individuals who work for the organization, the, the homeless people who now have a job and, and have a place to live. And it also transforms equivalent of, of the donors, the people who act, the customers. They come there, they can purchase this cup of coffee, and they know that they've made a difference in the world. They've become this, this giver as opposed to a consumer. Uh -huh. Okay, well, uh, thank you. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. gonna ask another question in a few minutes, but why don't you take a question from one of these other people? So Bob has written the book, a coffee table book, which I have here and it's disappeared because I got the wrong setting on my, on my Zoom screen. So Bob's written a book called, um, um, here it is, Un uh, Philanthropy Misunderstood. And so you're, you're talking about philanthropy and business there. And we often think that we have to have a nonprofit, but it's really the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. And we should have the same triple bottom line with nonprofits, we got we to gotta have money left over because we got to invest it in the infrastructure, marketing, salaries. You know, we should have some of those same, same, same factors. But the, um, the Starbucks and what's the other one called? Change, change please. please. Okay, so Starbucks changed the business model. Yep. That was the transformation they changed. Change, please is really changing people's lives. So we're, de we're, we're delivering a commodity but it's a, it one's about the experience and one, the other one's about the transformation. So I know when I'm, I'm paying extra money for coffee, that it's not just the coffee, it's really a fundamental vote for, for humankind. So it's, even though I'm buying a commodity, it's a, it's a, it's a me loving, loving people. So, so how do we, this is, this is what, it's a for-profit mm -hmm. it's what a nonprofit ought to be doing. So are there, how does these things apply to the nonprofit sector? Well, I think the nonprofit sectors, they're already there in a sense, right? Um, from the perspective, their mission is to change lives and to transform lives. What I would really say is you, if you go back through a lot of our conversation and I'll kind of weave it together now, I think what nonprofits can really do better is recognizing that 
that they're not the hero, they are the guide, and their role is to understand, does a particular donor want to be a hero or a guide? Does a particular volunteer want to be a hero or a guide? And I say that because there are, there are donors and volunteers who they're at a point in their life where for them to become a hero, to know that they did something good for other people, that's, that makes them feel good about themselves. It raises their self-confidence. And so the, the nonprofit is transforming those lives as well as the recipients of their services. And I think it's really critical for them to understand that. And then if you understand there are donors and there are volunteers um, who, who want to be the guides, they don't have a need to feel like a hero anymore. They want to get out there and guide others through their lives. Those are the potential leaders in your organization. Those donors who want to lead, not just be the hero, they want, they want to be the guide, not just the hero. Those are the donors who are going to go out there and recruit other donors so that you have a greater foundation. The, the, the volunteers who want to be the guides are going to be the ones that are volunteering for leadership roles and getting other volunteers to come on board. So you've got to understand not everyone wants to be a hero. Some want to be a guide. And so you got to make sure you're, you're addressing them correctly. Now, that element is critical. If you, if you look back to some of the other things we talked about here is understanding that journey that people are on. If we, if we look at most nonprofits, or many nonprofits, I want to say most, many nonprofits think it's about relieving a pain. It could be a spiritual pain, an emotional pain, a physical pain, a mental pain, right? It's about relieving that pain. That's the equivalent of living in the experience economy. Only when there's a mindset shift where they say, we're actually here to not just relieve the pain, but to really go beyond that and help these people transform into a thriving individual, someone who not just can eat today, but maybe they learn how to grow their own food or uh, maybe they, they learn a skill that can get them a job, right? Those are the types of things that, the, that nonprofits really switching from the experience economy to the transformation economy will have to do. And, and kind of as a, a cautionary tale, I would say, or maybe not a tale of warning, a cautionary warning is you will see more social businesses rise up because nonprofits don't step in. Whoa, there's a soundbite. That's, a, that's an emphatic soundbite. Wow. So I think this is a, this is a cycle. Um, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan and writes a daily devotion, um, is, is an inspiration for my wife and I. And he, one of his uh, quotes that I refer to often is, transformed people transform people. Exactly. And it doesn't take a lot of words. Wounded people wound people. And so how many organizations are just uh, working toward bricks and mortar and self-sustaining what they've got going rather than transforming people's lives. This is a huge paradigm shift. We almost need part B to this. So some <laughs> of your other books, Profitability, P-R-O-P-H-E-T instead of Profitability, Profitability. Um, and then you've got Leverage, How to Achieve a Lot with the Little You've Got, and The Complete Experience, Unlocking the Secrets of Online Reviews that Drive Customer loyalty. Oh, and then the Brave Leadership Mastery Journal. So you have several things. You have uh, Tony Boda, B-O-D-O-H dot com uh, podcasts. So you have podcasts on there that are helping think about the transformational 
journey and the clock is not our friend. It's telling us the time <laughs> is up. And um, I'm going to talk about our other, another sponsor today and then come back to you for a, a final thought or challenge that you want to leave people with. And so uh, another sponsor that allows us to provide free stuff to people is Easy Card. And if you want to get Center Vision's Easy Card, you know everything about what we're doing. And you can look right here, the nonprofit exchange videos. You can click on the card. And look, there's Tony Boda, our guest today. And so if you want to get this card on your smartphone, uh, you can write this down. Send a text to this number. It's five digits, 64600. Send a text to that number, 64600. And in the message part of that text, put in three letters, L D. R. It's really short for leader, L-D-R to 64600. You'll get a return text, click on the link, and voila, you've got the easy card. And so you know all about what the opportunities are for Center Vision Leadership Foundation. Easy card, you can have your own easy card to send texts, to be in touch with your tribe, your board, your volunteers, and all your donors. If they have your organization in the palm of their hand, you're just one text away from saying, hmm, we have a special event. Can you be there? So easycard.com, but go to 64600, type in the words LDR and get Center Vision's easy card so you know what we're up to and we are then connected. Tony Boda, this is really transformational journey talking to you today. So what do you want to leave people with, a thought or piece of advice or challenge? I think my challenge would be to go study the hero's journey and really understand it and then relentlessly look at the messaging in your own organization and look at, are you trying to be the hero or are you trying to be the guide? And if you do that work, you'll be ready for the next step. Tony Boda, T-O-N-Y-B-O-D-O-H.com has been our guest today. Tony, it's been really great and uh, we need to talk more often. So thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me, Hugh. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.